We didn't really get to engage in the text last week, the section that we're going through in 1 John, uh, because we spend so much time celebrating lives in baptisms. I hope you enjoyed that day as much as I did. I still haven't figured out who the dirtbag was that stole my towel, but I'll, I'll get to that. The thing I like about John is he gives us his purpose for writing, both in his epistle and in this letter. Men, do you ever kind of wonder what the purpose of a conversation with your spouse is? And would it help to know up front? I was listening to a program on the radio about marriage this week, and the guys said, they were counseling the guys, and they said, guys, you got to kind of understand what the purpose of the conversation is, because if you think the purpose of the conversation is to solve the problem, and the person, purpose of the conversation is just to listen, we're, you're in deep weeds before you ever start, right? So what I like about John is he gives us his purpose for writing. In John chapter 20, he gives us the reason of the gospel, for writing the gospel. I'm writing this thing so that you will figure out that Jesus is the Christ. And in figuring that out, believe it and have life in his name. He also gives us his reason for writing 1 John, 1 John 5, 13. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John 5. We're going to spend the morning there. I write these things to you, John says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose of the gospel is believing in Jesus. The purpose of this letter is for those who have believed that they may know that they have eternal life. John's purpose for writing this letter is the assurance of our salvation. The assurance of knowing that we are in Christ and that he is in us is one of the most freeing things in our lives. It allows us to live with risk. It allows us to live with faith. The problem is, as John has been writing, that it's easy to say all kinds of things. We can say, oh, I believe. But what does that mean? We all know or have known people probably who claim to be Christians but don't live anything like it. Have you ever seen that? And the truth is, if we're honest, there are times when we doubt we are. We wonder, am I really his? I, I, I don't feel like I'm his or I don't feel like I deserve to be his. How do we know the real deal when we see it? What is the real deal when it comes to believing in Christ? In being reborn. 1 John 5, 1 to 5, I'm going to read it this morning, and then we're going to take just a brief stab at understanding it. As we were praying this morning, I was talking to a guy, and he said, I said, we're not going to get to all this, and he said, just remember, your job is to whet our appetite. Our job is to go home and eat, and so I want to encourage you. 1 John 5, 1 to 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, that we, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
I'm not going to take this too linear and sequentially. I want us to understand what he's saying thematically. What's he saying here? First of all, the definition of Christianity is not a religion. How many of you think Christianity is a religion? Don't raise your hand. It's not. It was never designed to be. It's not a certain church organization or structure. It's not a doctrinal statement. All of those things matter, but they do not get to the core of Christianity. It's not even a a lifestyle. It's a life. It's God reproducing his life in us. It's being born or spiritually reborn. That's Christianity. It's not us trying to live on God's term and asking God to bless it. That will never work. Let me say it again. It will never work. And for some of us who have tried, it's why we walk around saying we're Christians and never smile. (laughs) I love Jesus. And it's miserable. That ain't it. That's not what God designed. The interesting thing about life is that it's living, (laughs) right? It's living. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 and he wanted to talk about religious stuff. He was a religious leader and Jesus said, hey, bro, you're not born again. You're not going to get it anyhow, so let's cut to the chase. You realize without being born again, without the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, we'll never know Christ, we'll never understand who he is, we'll never by faith be willing to submit to him, and we'll never know what he intends for us to know. It's only as we're reborn when the Holy Spirit of God comes into us. When God created Adam and Eve, how did he get life into them? He formed them from the dust of the earth, it says, and then he breathed his life into mankind. What is that word? Numa. What's the word pneuma mean? Spirit. When God gives us his spirit, he... That sounds cool to Mike. He re-breathes spiritual life in us. It's very much like giving man physical life in the original creation. When we become born again, he inspirates. He puts his spirit in us. He makes us alive from the spirit and with the spirit. That's the description. That's what he's saying. It's a new life, and the old life doesn't, can't make us live this new life. It's impossible. The most frustrated people I know are those who are trying to live the life of God on their own terms. It's like a dead person trying to ride a bicycle. It's not going to work very well. Or a dead person snow skiing. You can be dead and play golf. That's, that's not that hard. <laughs> I went to the driving range with a guy the other night. I haven't played for so long. I might as well have been dead. That little white ball's a lot harder to hit than I remember. When we have physical life, there are signs of life. How do you know the person next to you is alive? Some of you women are saying, that's a great question. <laughs> Based on the guy sitting next to me. How do you know a person's alive? They're breathing. They're walking. They're talking. They feel pain. 
They have brainwave activity, again, depending on the time of the day and who it is. There are signs of life, and when the signs of life are gone, the doctor says they're dead. Now, we can try and revive them, keep them alive, hope they come back alive, but the odds are they're not. Dead is dead. And the problem is that that is true spiritually. There are people who think they're alive, trying to fake it to be alive, but they're dead spiritually. And John is saying, this is how you know you know. It's an encouragement for those who have come to Christ, and it's a great evaluation tool. So what are the evidences of spiritual life? How do you know you know? First one is love. John says in verses 1 and 2 that, the one, that one of the primary signs of spiritual life is that we love both God and each other. A person who has come alive spiritually loves. The kind of love that actually means something. Have, have, <clears throat> young ladies, if a man ever tells you he loves you, be suspicious. Really, really, really suspicious. There's a married couple, and she's looking at him going, hmm. I always tell young ladies, if a man says he loves you, the next words out of his mouth should be, and will you marry me? Because the words love are cheap, right? I love you means you make me feel good. I love your deep brown eyes. I said blue eyes in the first service, and I'm going to pay for that. If somebody tells on me, my wife does not have blue eyes, right? Big, big brown ones. And so, you know, I remember when I first saw Linda. I remember when I first met Linda. I remember when I first called Linda. And some of the times I was actually talking to you, Jan, instead of Linda. So I learned real quickly I had to be careful what I was saying on the phone. But I didn't love her yet. I thought I did, right? I thought I did. But at the point I finally became convinced five years later, poor girl, I remember being absolutely convinced that when I said those words, the next one's out of my mouth should be, will you marry me? Because love is a commitment. It's a submission of my life. It's giving my life to someone, not just hoping I can take from their life. That's the kind of love that is talked about here. A person that has come alive spiritually loves, but it's the kind of love that means something. They love like they have been loved by God. That's been a constant theme in this letter, has it not? 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is is love. A person who has been reborn spiritually takes on the life and character of the one who gave them life. Sometimes I look at my grandkids and I think, where did you get that? And my wife will say, no wonder. Because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, remember? We say that. One of my granddaughters is a very tall, big girl. She's husky, and, and she was putting on tights not long ago, and she said to her mother, why are my buns so big? <laughs> and her dad, who was a college football player, said, 
that would be my fault, honey. <laughs> One of our grandkids is very sensitive. He's just a very sensitive young man, and his father said, I don't get him. Where did he get that? Uh, that would be me. He's like a clone of me in his emotions, even his physical build. What happens is we love God because his character is love. And when his Holy Spirit enters us, we can't help but take on his character. Does that make sense? I know I've probably used this illustration before. At my age, I can't remember, so I keep having good ones over and over again. There's a guy who came to our church and was growing, and his son said, what have you done with my father? What do you mean? He's a different guy. He's a different guy. I said, I haven't done anything. I've just been fed in a flame of what God does. And first of all, we love God and we desire God. That's the first evidence. Loving God is not simply about loving God for what he can do for us. It's loving him. It's interesting how John phrases the statement. Everybody who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and loves Jesus. Is that what it says? No, he loves the Father. He loves the Father. Everyone who has been born of Christ receives the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about again next week, but he loves the Father. It's all three in one. He loves the Father. We're in love with the Father. We talk a lot about loving Jesus, but do we talk about worshiping God, the Father who loved us enough to send his Son? We love the Father. We love God. A person who has been born from above has the Holy Spirit living in them, and the Holy Spirit, how does he feel about the Father? He loves, he adores, he wants to bring glory and wants the Father to enjoy what this person is loving him. How many of you love to snuggle with your kids or grandkids? Why do you love that? Because they're loving you in return. I'm trying to make it a point of when one of them carries a book to me and wants to sit on my lap, I stop and enjoy because they're loving me. First Peter 1.8 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One, if not the key evidence of being born again, is loving God. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Just whoop, please, don't save your... Don't. How many of us are nonplussed with God? Just take him or leave him. How long will your marriage last if you're nonplussed with your spouse? The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And I think so often we get in a place where we're not actively pursuing God. I was talking to somebody today and they were telling me about some friends who have said, we're getting a divorce. 
Well, how come we just don't care about each other anymore? Well, how come you don't care about each other? Because we don't. What they have done is let life, careers, experiences, hobbies capture their attention and they're facing this way rather than pursuing this way. And it can happen to anybody. And let's be honest, can't it happen in our walk with God? We can become indifferent, take it for granted. Oh yeah, I believe all that stuff, but what John is saying is if we've been birthed from above and we're following the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will continue to call us and cause us to love our Father, His Father, our Father. One of, if not the key evidence, is loving God. Secondly, a person who's been born again loves those who have been born again and love God. That's what he's saying. If we love God, we'll love those who are born of God. They go together. One can't really exist without the other. No matter what we say, we don't and can't love God if we don't love his children. One of the other issues, as we were talking about this couple, they said they quit going to church. They said, uh-oh. <laughs> Not that church saves us, but how many of us need encouragement from others to stay the course, to continue to pursue the Lord? We're going to talk about that, but loving each other, it's interesting the phrase he uses, John has repeatedly made this point, we can't love God and not love each other, but the phrase he uses here is we demonstrate our love for each other by obeying God. Faith in Christ and love go together. Let me say that. Faith in Christ and loving others go together. It's like having a heart and lungs. Get rid of one and the other one dies too, right? Listen to this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, so I never cease giving thanks for you. Colossians 1, 3 and 4, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and 4, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and loving each other are two sides of the same coin. We don't get one without the other. And we don't really have one probably unless the other one is present. That's what John is saying. That's how you know you know. One of the indications, one of the big indications of us actually knowing Christ is that we love each other. And we treat each other that way. John is not describing a duty to fulfill. He's describing a characteristic of authentic Christianity. Authentic Christians love. Why? Because our Father loves and he recreates that in us and through us because he's love. Another indication is obedience. One of the signs of love is obedience. How many of you have ever had kids or grandkids said, I love you, but I don't want anything to do with what you tell me? 
How well does that work? John goes on to give the, the description. This is what love is, obeying God. It's more than that, but it sure isn't less than that. We can't say, I love you, God, but I want to do my own thing. Again, John uses a very interesting phrase. The love of the children of God is evidenced by loving God and obeying his commandments. A person who loves God loves what God says, and a person who loves others loves what God says and helps them understand what God says. Love, in some ways, John is saying, equals obedience. Love obeys. Now, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others or yourself. So Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love, one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's how we love each other. There are times when we get discouraged. Anybody ever get discouraged? Anybody ever get angry? Anybody ever think this isn't worth it? Anybody ever think, I'm not sure if I believe this? Anybody ever think, ah, da, 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 whatever you think. How do we love God with each other's in mind? We challenge that. So we can say to each other, really, why? I just don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. Hmm. Have you shed your blood? Is it costing you more than it costs your Savior? Is it costing you more than it costs God to love you? Come on, let's walk this walk together. We are to breathe life into each other. You ever been around people who breathe life into you? You ever been around people who suck life out of you? We're to breathe life into each other. That's how we live life together. And then he goes on to say God's commands aren't burdensome. That sounds like a stupid statement. Is it a burden sometimes to obey God? Answer, yes. There are times when what God asks me to do, I don't really want to do, and it's not much fun to do. Even golf would be more fun sometimes than doing what God asks me to do. Why are his commands not burdensome? Because we love the one giving the commands. And we know that he loves us. Listen to Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Jesus says, come, all, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here's why I want to suggest that God's commands aren't burdensome. One, they're good. If you read Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're not going to take time this morning, but if you read Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says that we're present, to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And we're to have our minds transformed by the washing of the word. And when we do that, we can prove or experience or know what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. God's commands are good. 
His commands are also perfect, purposeful. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we read that God uses all things and he works together to good that we might be conformed to his image. You know what you'll take into eternity with you? You. And that includes the character he's developing right now. What kind of person do you want to be for all eternity? What God's doing is is creating a person that will live in joy with him and for his glory for all eternity. He's developing my character now for then. Psalm 119, the psalmist says this in verse 13, and I would encourage you to read all of Psalm 119. Listen to what he says. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. He's in love with what God says, not just God. In the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Why? Because it declares who he is. When God says, don't do this or please do this, what he's saying is, this is who I am and this is who I made you to be. I'm not saying that God's will is not sometimes hard. That's stupid to say. In fact, if I understand what Jesus says, it will cost us our lives. We can't have our life and his life at the same time. Matthew 16, 24 to 25, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I was at a couple of the guys' Bible studies this week, and at one of them, Pete uh, P. Peterson was there. And they said, hey, Pete, if you know Pig, Pete and Peg, Peg had health issues for the last several years of her life. And Pete really took care of his wife. And I said, hey, Pete, was that ever burdensome? I think you know what his answer was. No. Why did he say that? Because he loved Peg. And then I asked this question, was it ever a burden? Oh, yeah. Was it ever hard? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't burdensome. It wasn't overwhelming. It didn't seem like an overwhelming task because he loved Peg. That's why the commandments of God are not burdensome because of our love for him and love for others. Love my children. Why? Because I need them to be loved, and I'm asking you to take care of it for me. Not because they're lovable, not because they're lovely, but because I love them. The last indication that I find in this particular text is one who is really born again has victory. One who has been born of God overcomes. An authentic Christian overcomes the world. Jesus said this in John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. An authentic Christian overcomes a number of things. One is sin. One is the fear of death. One is the world. 
Have you ever watched somebody with a long-term illness and the life just is sucked out of them? Could be cancer, different diseases, can be emotional trauma, Alzheimer's, and life just gradually is sucked out of their life. You ever watch life get sucked out of a marriage? We talked about it earlier. I got to tell you that sin sucks the life out of our spiritual lives. And sin is simply self-centeredness. The good news of the gospel is that life overcomes death, not the other way around. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death and now offers new life, a life that overcomes. And I believe overcoming is often enduring. I'm not here to tell you that if you're a good Christian, life will be a piece of cake. If I was going to tell you that, you'd soon find out I was a liar. Paul says in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 is about endurance, not success. Anybody here? Facing what seems to be insurmountable, overwhelming circumstances. It can be health issues. It can be marriage issues. It can be family issues. It can be career issues. It can be the sudden death of a loved one that you didn't even have time to prepare for. Where did that come from? God, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can breathe. This is not what I had planned. Life from above gives and allows us the ability to endure, to stand up under the weight, to overcome. An authentic Christian endures and eventually overcomes. Why? Because our Savior overcame life and death on our behalf. That we might know his life, not just in eternity, but today. And I have to tell you, that's not platitudes. It's reality. And the means by which we get this life is believing by faith. Look at how often John uses the word. Verse 1, everyone who believes. Verse 4, the victory that overcomes the world is faith. The one that overcomes the world is the one who believes. Belief and faith are the exact same root word here. Uh, I coined a phrase. I think I mentioned it last week. It's faithing. <laughs> In English, we have different words that kind of take the same meaning, and, but they're not the same words. Belief is a noun, or faith is a noun. Believing is an active application of faith. So we might even say in English, we're faithing. We're walking in faith. Belief is faith in action. The real point is not just the faith. It's the object of the faith. In our culture, we believe in our faith. If I just have enough faith, if I just have enough faith. The point of Scripture is I don't have enough faith. I can't have enough faith. If I have the faith of a mustard seed in the right thing... 
then the response will be the things that we've talked about. And the right thing is Jesus. Jesus, the Christ we sang about, I believe, I believe in this, I believe in this, I believe in this, I believe that he came to give his life, I believe that he rose from the dead, I believe that he died for me, I believe that he came to give me life, I believe that the Holy Spirit enters my life. And it's not just here, it's giving my life too. Uh, we were in one of the Bible studies this week and I asked Neil, okay, what's that word mean? And, and whenever Neil says, well, when we had to translate that word, you need to get a pen out because you're getting some goodies. When they're translating what the Word of God says into a language that doesn't have a word for that concept, they had to figure out a word for that concept. And the truth is, in English, sometimes it's very hard to translate concepts into what we believe. Faith is not just, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, set of facts, I believe it. I believe two plus two equals four, but an engineer believes it, right? So he, he said when they were looking for the right word, they were asking about it, and he's trying to explain the concept, and these guys are saying, we have a word when you chop down a tree, and it falls in the forest, and it gets hung up in the other trees, this word, which I can't remember, and I can't say, that tree is now supported by the other trees. It is in no way supporting itself. And Neil said, is that word used that way in any other context? And he said, yeah, when a person gets really old and they can't support themselves, they can't pick themselves up, they can't do for themselves, good friends come alongside, one on each side, and they hold them up. And, he, and, and they trust their life to their friends. And he goes, that's the word. And so they translated faith that way. Any of you seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? It's a bloody movie, ladies, that watching is good. It's a story of a conscientious objector, Desmond Doss. He wouldn't carry a rifle, but he wanted to be involved. And so as he entered the army, his commander, all the guys in his unit, they couldn't stand him. They called him a chicken. They, were gonna, they threw boots at him when he was praying. They didn't want anything to do with him. And they got assigned the task of taking Hacksaw Ridge. If you know anything about the history, and I would encourage you to look this up. Hacksaw Ridge was about a 150-foot cliff on the beaches an island, and they had to take this island. And so the guys showed up, and the Japanese were in caves in the wall and buried in the dirt on top, on top. And as these men scaled this cliff to take this island, they were mowed down by the enemy. And here was this young man, Desmond Doss, who they said at that point in his life weighed probably 148 pounds. And without a gun, he kept carrying guys. He'd grab one, take them to the edge of the cliff, and lower them down to the cliff to the other medics. And as he got there, he said, oh, God, just let me get one more. And he would go back and get another one. And he'd lower them down, and he said, oh, God, just one more. You know how many guys he carried out of that battle zone? Seventy-five. He saved 75 men's lives. Why? Because he loved the one who loved those men. And he said, 
I will give my life to love those men. Carl Bentley, who was there, said, it's as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. Doss saved 75 men, including his captain, over a 12-hour pill period. The same soldiers who had shamed him now praised him. He's one of the bravest persons alive, he said. And then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing because of how I had treated him. The illustration is men desperate for life, trusting a man that didn't make any sense, who was willing to give his life to save them. And help he did because he loved them because he loved the one who loved them. That's living by faith in our daily lives. We love because we're loved. We give our lives because of the one who gave his life for us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ, who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. There's the word, by faith. I trust what he did. I trust what he will do. And come hell or high water, I'm in. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I read a meme this week, and it's one of those ones that I chuckled at and love. said this. God wants full custody of his kids, not just weekend visits. Does he have it of us? That's how we know we're his. He's all in with us, and we are all in with him. That's the real deal. Not always. We're not perfect, but we're saying I am investing and trusting my life to him because of who he is and what has he done? he's done for me. And so I will give my life for those he loves. Father, I pray that you will help us understand what it means to be reborn. That walking in obedience is simply trusting you. And that we're willing to do that by faith. Help us to un ask the, ourselves the question, are we really in love with you? Do we love you or are we just trying to use you? Do we love each other because you love them? Do we walk in, in obedience for your glory, our benefit, and for the encouragement and benefit of those around us? Father, encourage us that as we see those signs, they're the reality, they are the testimony that we are yours because we wouldn't do those on our own. Thank you that we may know whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen.